My name is Josh. For those of you who uh, are visiting, I teach at Lipscomb even though I look like I'm 12. I'm actually on faculty there. Um, when I preached about a year ago, George Goldman made a comment about um, uh, mine was the only dissertation with coloring pages uh, that he had seen. So, um, can you not hear me? A, this is a monodirectional mic. Oh, okay. <laughs> is this better? Yes. Okay. So, uh, Hebrews is one long sermon, so those of you who are visiting, we're going to do a quick recap so you know where we're at, uh, because as a sermon should go, uh, you should understand how it develops from beginning to end. I feel like I should make some joke here about Josh's postmodern kind of preaching style, um, uh, but I, I won't. So, uh, Hebrews opens up, uh, we see Jesus as one who is both fully God and fully human. Uh, the strange mystery that that is becomes central to our understanding of the book of Hebrews. Uh, the logic only works if you understand that he is both God and human. He is one, as uh, has been declared, that creates and sustains. This is what Yahweh does. But he is also one who becomes fully flesh and blood and experiences our weaknesses and our sufferings. Fully human. Uh, very difficult to understand how these come together, but it's also crucial to the development of this um, chapter, of this sermon. We look at Jesus, um, uh, the Hebrew author points to Jesus' exaltation um, and that his path to exaltation back to the glory of the Father is a path of faithfulness, obedience, and suffering love. And what that becomes then is a model for his disciples. Jesus has been uh, referred to as the pioneer. The pioneer is the one who has showed us the path on this journey in Hebrews of faithfulness, obedience, and suffering. He has also been presented as the fully human one, uh, the one who embraces what it means to be human better than anyone else has. And so he becomes not only uh, the pioneer, but also the example for our own path as we seek to live faithfully, with obedience, and with suffering love on our journey uh, to, uh, the, to rest, as we're going to get to later today. Jesus has been declared superior to angels, so we see um, maybe he's calling on the tradition of the angels as those who uh, mediated the Torah, the law. Jesus is superior to Torah, uh, and he is superior to Moses. Moses is wonderful. Hebrews has nothing bad to say about Moses, but Jesus is superior to him, uh, which gets us closer to our chapter today, because as the parallel was drawn between Jesus and Moses, the next parallel is between uh, Israel and the present church. And so as we look uh, to how Jesus is superior to Moses, uh, we think about how the church might learn from Israel. Um, what we saw in chapter 3 is this reading from Psalm 95. So if you're in Hebrews, uh, chapter 4 requires you to understand what's just been talked about in chapter 3. In chapter 3, the Hebrew writer quotes Psalm 95 7 through 11, so I'm in verse 7 right now of chapter 3. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, don't have stubborn hearts as they did in the rebellion, on the day when they tested me in the desert. That is where your ancestors challenged and tested me, though they had seen my work for 40 years. So I was angry with them. I said their hearts always go off course, and they don't know my ways. Because of my anger, I swore, they will never enter my rest. So in chapter 3, the focus on this passage from Psalm 95 
is uh, calling those who are listening to faithfulness and obedience. Just as some in Israel were not able to enter rest because of their disobedience, so now the warning is that some of you may not be able to enter that rest if you don't continue the path of faithfulness. This isn't a very comforting chapter or two here. Uh, and so the warning in chapter 3 is don't, don't become calloused by sin. Because that is a danger. of Sin just grows you more and more calloused and you fall more and more off of this path on this journey towards the kingdom of God. So this brings us then into chapter 4. So chapter 4, verse 1. If you'll get there, if you have to flip in your phones. With a hundred so of you in here, I know that that takes a while sometimes. Okay, chapter 4. Therefore, since the promise that we can enter into rest is still open, let's be careful so that none of you will appear to miss it. We also had the good news preached to us, just as the Israelites did. Listen to that parallel. We are learning from the Israelites. However, the message they heard didn't help them because they weren't united in faith with the ones who listened to it. We who have faith are entering the rest, as God said, and because of my anger, I swore they will never enter into my rest. And yet God's works were completed at the foundation of the world. Then somewhere he said this about the seventh day of creation. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. But again in the passage above, God said, they will never enter my rest. Therefore it's left open for some to enter it, and the ones who had the good news preached to them before didn't enter because of disobedience. Just as it says in the passage above, God designates a certain day as today, when he says through David much later, today if you hear his voice, don't have stubborn hearts. If Joshua gave the Israelites rest, God wouldn't have spoken about another day later on. So you see that a Sabbath rest is left open for God's people. The one who entered God's rest also rested from his works, just as God rested from his own. So, my guess is, if you were like me the first time I read this, you thought, what? I remember in uh, high school, I, went, I didn't grow up Church of Christ, but I went to a Church of Christ high school, and I remember being told that um, you can just pick up the Bible and read it like any other book and completely understand it. And I thought, that's a wonderful thing. And now later, I think either uh, maybe people are a lot smarter than me, uh, and so they can understand it in ways I can't, or whoever thought up this idea that you can pick it up and read it like any other book has a very high view of humans. Or maybe they've never read Hebrews 4. Uh, because this is some complex stuff. And uh, let's face it, Scripture is complex at times. And maybe that's why God uh, gifted the church with teachers and others to struggle through these things. So let me give you what I think is going on uh, in these first 11 verses with this reference to rest. Uh, so Psalm 95. So we'll start with Psalm 95, uh, which says... Uh, if you hear his voice, don't have stubborn hearts. And then down to verse 11. Because of my anger, I swore they will never enter my rest. So Psalm 95 is referencing numbers when the Israelites were about to enter the promised land. So we're going to have Hebrews referencing Psalm 95, which is referencing numbers. So we're going to have three kind of views of what rest means and plus Genesis. If you didn't follow that, that's fine. I'll write it up here. So, it initially references the rest of the promised land. 
the Israelites who were in the desert had hoped to enter the rest, meaning the land of Canaan, the land that was promised to them. You can see this language of it referred to as rest, like in Deuteronomy 12.9. So not too controversial there. But then it gets confusing um, as we're trying to understand it in view of Psalm 95. Because, as you see, like in verses uh, 7 through 8, just as it says in the passage above, God designates a certain day as today, when he says through David, and the key words here, whatever they are in your translation, are much later. What the Hebrew author is pointing out is that they had already entered the promised land. And yet the psalmist, speaking through the Holy Spirit, is still referring to a rest that can be entered. Which means... Uh, that there has to be something beyond just the promised land. Something like the promised land plus. Something in addition to this. It's in continuity with the promised land, but that's not all it is. So the question that the Hebrew author is going to raise is, what is this other rest? Questions so far about this? Good. It's a good thing about a big class. People have questions, but they're too afraid to ask it, so I don't get stumped. All right, so David must be talking about something else than just the promised land. What might that be? Well, the Hebrew author points uh, to um, Sabbath rest. So this is verses 3 and following. We who have faith are entering the rest, as God said, and because of my anger I swore they won't enter my rest. And yet God's works were completed at the foundation of the world. Then somewhere he said about this, he said this about the seventh day of creation, God rested on the seventh day from all his works, but again in the passage above, God said, they will never enter my rest. So the third kind of way of understanding rest comes from Genesis 2. which is getting us near to where the Hebrew author is pointing. The question that he's kind of raised, what is this uh, additional rest that's beyond the promised land, he's starting to point to by borrowing the same language of rest from Exodus and Genesis. It has something to do with entering into the rest of God. So, uh, moving on from here, uh, verse 7, what he points to then is um, back in Psalm 95. There's a lot of moving back and forth, obviously. He, he picks up on the key word today. Today, if you hear his voice. Because the view is something like a new day has dawned with Christ. Things are not the same. What was true of the promises of old have been fulfilled and they've come to something greater and better today in Christ. And that something better... is being able to enter into the rest of God. And if we think about what the rest of God might look like, we can look at other places where the Hebrew author is giving us other images to think about this. So, for instance, in chapter 2, verse 10, it's glory, like the presence of God. Or in chapter 12, 28, we have the kingdom of God, 
Or in chapter 2, verse 5, the world to come. So if you're following these parallels, Israel was looking forward to entering into the rest of the promised land. And that becomes a foreshadowing of something newer and greater. As we've kept seeing throughout Hebrews, what happened with Israel is being filled to the full. It's not just a prophecy that's getting checked off, but there is some sort of filling to the fullness that Jesus brings. What was true of Israel going to the promised land is so much more true of the new Israel, the church, entering into the new promised land of the rest of God. What is that rest of God? It's something like entering into His glory as Jesus has done. It's something like that kingdom that's coming, that good and perfect kingdom where there is peace and reconciliation and restoration. Or it's like the world to come. And so if we're following some of this then, uh, what we see is, is the Hebrew author is not pointing to uh, we're going to fly away one day as spirits, but just as at the beginning when that initial rest that God made with, with Adam and the garden was this good physical world where there was intimacy between God and humans and humans and humans, and things were right. And, and the promised land was supposed to be this place where things worked as they were supposed to, if only Israel would be faithful to its God. It was this good physical land where people would be in relationship with God and one another, and the nations would look at it and say, wow, what kind of God is this and what kind of people is this? And what we're looking forward to on this journey is the kind of rest that is also physical and whole and restored. It is the new Jerusalem coming down. Right? It is God reigning as king in his kingdom and us, his subjects, living as though he truly were our king. This is a good rest. This is something exciting. And it's not the kind of rest where we just lay around all day. As he talks about here, God rested on the seventh day, and yet we know God has been active. We know God has been sustaining and doing good work of reconciling. And Jesus entered into that rest, and yet we know he is still active and present within us. And so we look forward to a rest where we still have purpose, and there is goodness, and there is something to eternally live for. But... What's left a little fuzzy here, so I won't go into more detail. Can you make a comment? Yeah. I think that we, the, the, uh, the average Christians, are at a disadvantage to understanding this passage because we don't practice the Sabbath. Uh, I think someone who, and I'm not claiming that I do that, I mean, I aspire to, especially since it's one of the Ten Commandments, uh, but... I think someone who practices the Sabbath every week would read this quite differently because that is that is entering that rest on a weekly basis as a discipline and you know there's I think part of the rest would come from like the peace of mind like you're letting your mind rest and um, even with all the chaos around you know you understand peace in a different way and like I said given that we don't we don't do that we don't experience that regularly there's probably a, a chunk of this that we're missing yeah it can give us something like a, um, a, a vision of what's to come I mean it's still a foretaste 
So Lauren and I have tried to practice Sabbath, which we did pretty well until we had kids. I don't know how to practice Sabbath when you've got a six-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old. Um, I long for that time back uh, in some ways. Uh, I was just reading a book called Acedia and Its Discontents. Bestseller? None of you read it? Okay. Um, so Acedia is, is like a fancy word for sloth. So here's this philosophy of religion guy. And what he's getting at is um, even our view of Sabbath tends to be something like just a ceasing from work. But he says that's, that's like doing half of it. That a true Sabbath is not just not working, but it's appreciating the goodness of creation. It's kind of declaring good what God has declared good. And experiencing the goodness of what God says is truly good. And that's also what we're looking forward to in this rest to come. Kind of what you're getting at is, is experiencing the good created world and its restored sense as it's meant to be experienced. We're not floating in clouds with harps, right? We're enjoying this creation that God declared good. And we're enjoying this community uh, that God has made possible through Christ. So one other thing on this, and then we'll get to uh, the Word of God. So verses 10, actually verse 8. If Joshua gave the Israelites rest, God wouldn't have spoken of another day later on. So you see that a Sabbath rest is left open for God's people. Verse 10 is strangely translated here. I've already offended some people. (laughs) The one who entered God's rest also rested from his works, just as God rested from his own. Your translation might say something like, anyone who enters God's rest will rest from his works. So I was reading this very closely, reading it in the Greek, and I thought, okay, I got it. I can write an article on this because the four or five commentaries I've read don't put these two things together that I'm about to share. So I did what I should do, and I looked at the recent journal articles, and someone did one last year. So it was very disappointing. But, but the, the parallel in verse 8 through 10, let me erase this first. So he talks about Joshua leading them into rest. So... I make it Jeshua to kind of show you this combination of Jesus and Joshua. Because in Greek, Joshua and Jesus are the same. So he's building this parallel here. Joshua, Jeshua, Jesus, was bringing the Israelites one kind of rest. But the new Joshua, we've had a new Moses, superior Moses, superior Jesus. Our Jeshua... is bringing us into God's rest. And so the point in verse 10 uh, is not about works of the law or what works do you need to do to get into heaven or anything like that. The point, the focus is not on you. The focus is on our Jeshua, our Jesus, our Jesus. He is one who has entered God's rest and is now rested from his work. What is his work? His work is what we've seen through these first four chapters, his work of faithfulness and obedience and suffering love. And so, the invitation then becomes in verse 11, as we look to our Joshua, our leader, as has been built up through all these four chapters, verse 11, Therefore, following him, let's make every effort to enter into that rest so that no one will fall by following the same example of disobedience. Joshua led the Israelites... And that was a faithful group of Israelites that time that entered the Promised Land. 
Now we are following a new and better and more faithful Joshua, and we follow him on the path that he walked and that he pioneered. Faithfulness, obedience, and suffering love. We should not expect to walk a different path. Questions so far on that? Yeah? So, in looking at the word today, which he quotes, yes. it goes back to chapter, to chapter 3, right. verse 13, to encourage one another as long as it's called today. Correct. And then in here, it talks about today almost meaning this Sabbath rest. Are we in a Sabbath rest perpetually? No. <laughs> um, the today is picking up not only there, but back in the psalm quote. And it's spoken through David, and it's something like, yes and no, maybe. Kind of like the kingdom is here now, in part, but not in full. There is a rest now, but it's certainly not the rest we experience in fullness. Jesus has entered into that rest. And so we are following that path to rest. And we have an assurance, in some ways, of rest. So, yes and no. All right, yes. The rest, too, I hope restoration that comes with heaven, that the struggle of us having to deal with good and evil will be gone. Absolutely, yeah. That's the key rest we're going to get. It's finally that struggle is going to be whipped forever. Right, which fits, which fits Jesus' rest in verse 10. What is he resting from? He's not resting from being engaged in his creation or with his people. He is very much still active and present. We've already seen Hebrews 1. He is sustaining creation still. But he is rested from that struggle, from the human weaknesses, from the temptations. Thank God. How many of us are looking forward to that rest? And the good news is that in some ways, through Jesus, we are already experiencing some of that. Some victory over sin, some lessening of temptation, some freedom from the enslavement that sin brings. But we look forward to experiencing it in its fullness. Yes, thank you. I meant to make that point more clearly, um, and I didn't. Yes. And I may have missed this, um, your analysis of the Greek text and this other article you read, exactly what insight did that give you? Oh, verse 10 in some translations isn't the one who entered rest, but it's anyone who enters rest. So the focus then is moved from our pioneer has entered into that rest and it becomes an invitation, any of you who enter rest. I can explain it to you easier after class. Verse 10, yes. Josh? Yeah, one more. Was there any, in the commentaries and things, was was there any noting about maybe the way that the Talmudic law kind of bastardized the Sabbath from Joshua to today with all the laws about you can only walk so far, cook your meals before sundown, and how that kind of makes the rest a stressful rest versus... Uh, Nothing I read about that, but I mean it would... You could see that fitting with what Jesus was doing. The kind of way he practiced Sabbath rest was a rest of restoration, to use the same word. Um, so as he, as he you know, sees someone who is crippled, do you do good or do evil? You bring healing or not. And so what do you do on the Sabbath? You bring restoration, because that's what it's about. It's about you know, things as they're meant to be, uh, not just not doing anything. Yeah, so there's certainly continuity. All right, so two more things in chapter 4. First, we talk about the importance of rest, but these all follow. Verses 12 and 13. Because God's Word is living, active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, it penetrates to the point that it separates the soul from the spirit, 
and the joints from the marrow. It's able to judge the heart's thoughts and intentions. No creature is hidden from it, but rather everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of the one to whom we have to give an answer. So we have to, to pay attention to the flow of the argument here. He has pointed to Scripture, to Psalm 95, and to Numbers. He has pointed to the Israelites' example to get us to this uh, idea about God's Word as living and active and penetrating our hearts. That example of the Israelites here is supposed to open up our hearts. This isn't just a, a random aside about the nature of Scripture. In fact, as he talks about God's Word, he's not just talking about the Old Testament. After all, the New Testament wasn't fully written at this time. Uh, he's talking, as N.T. Wright uh, puts it, uh, Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, and how they've come true in Jesus, which is what we've seen throughout these four chapters. It's the Old Testament and what we've seen be true about it in Jesus. The Old Testament helps us understand Jesus, and Jesus helps us understand the Old Testament. And if we understand the Word of God, or if we open ourselves up to it, it will convict us, and sharpen us, and expose truth. Verse 12, God's Word is living. After all, it is uh, spoken through the living God, so we should expect it not to be a dead thing. It is still active, still has power. God's Word is living and active, which could be translated something like strong and effective. And sharper than any two-edged sword, it penetrates to the point that it separates the soul from the spirit and the joints from the marrow. So the imagery here seems to be about it's able to separate that which, or to distinguish, to penetrate those things that we can't even fully grasp. After all, what's the difference between the soul and the spirit? It gets to the heart of things. So I think the second part of verse 12 is, is the point of this. It's able to judge the heart's thoughts and intentions. If we open ourselves up to the Word of God, what it does is it exposes the truth of our hearts and lives. And notice that the progression here is you open yourself up because the calling is to faithfulness and obedience and a calling away, a warning from the callousness of sin. And when your heart has grown callous, what you need is an instrument to cut away the calluses, to expose the truth, to penetrate where your own kind of self-evaluation might not get you. Your own community might tell you what you want to hear. Your own heart can deceive you. But if you allow it, the Word of God can save you. Uh, two, two quotes maybe on this. First is from, I think his name is Ronald, Ronald Cox. He's a teacher at Rochester, Rochester College. So here's how he describes it. Because this instrument can cut through and pierce and reveal our heart, it reveals it to God. All creatures are naked and laid bare to Him. The imagery is frightening and it's embarrassing. It's like being at the doctor's office and you're there in all your glory, standing in front of Him and being naked in front of a doctor. That's frightening. That's embarrassing. But imagine standing before God, not being able to hide anything. How humiliating, and that's exactly where we are before Scripture. As terrifying as this is, though, I firmly believe this is a good place to be. What we do, and this is the particularly good lines here, what we do to protect ourselves, to hide ourselves, the devices we employ to disguise the reality of who we are, those need to be cut away. We need to stand before God as we truly are, because then, and only then, will God truly heal us and make us clean 
and make it so that we can have freedom and confidence in His presence. So now you can better understand the words of the psalmist today if you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Or, as N.T. Wright puts it, The thrust of the passage, though obviously intended as a warning, can also lead to a great encouragement. If this is going to happen sooner or later, you had much better get on with it. If you have a choice between letting the doctor examine you right away, uncomfortable though it may be, and waiting until he or she can do a post-mortem on you after it's too late, it's wise to go on for the first. If you open yourself day by day and week by week to the message of Scripture, its grand sweep and its small details, and allow the faithful preaching of Jesus and His achievements to enter your consciousness and soak down into your imagination and heart, then the admittedly uncomfortable work of God's Word will be happening on a regular basis, showing you, as we say, where you really are, what's going on deep inside. So, God's Word, if we allow it to, we can hide from it, we can plug our ears to it, but if we do the work that it's supposed to do, if we allow ourselves, allow it to do it the work that it's supposed to do, it can open us up to the kind of painful and yet healing surgery of God. The living God, through His living Word, can shape our hearts, can cut away the sin and the callousness, which is the invitation. Don't be like those Israelites who fell in the wilderness. You know what God is capable of. Allow His Word to protect you and to shape you. And then we have this, this really interesting transition. This, this very uncomfortable passage about God's Word that's sharper than two, any two-edged sword that leaves us, in verse 13, naked and exposed. The language of exposed uh, has the word neck in it, so it's like um, exposing your neck to it. It's a very vulnerable position. Notice the transition from naked and exposed and vulnerable, and then 14. Let's hold on to the confession since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, who is Jesus, God's Son, because we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but instead one who is tempted in every way that we are, except for without sin. Finally, let's draw near to the throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace when we need help. God is judge, verse 13. To Him we all must give an answer and it's not going to be the answer that we feel like giving because we are going to be lying there naked and exposed. It's the truth of who we are. That's scary. And yet, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence and boldness. Not because when we're laid bare, we have anything to be particularly proud of, but because we have a great high priest who intercedes for us, who is merciful, who understands our weaknesses. He is, he is not distant, but He became, and this is from the very first thing, just like us, taking on our flesh and blood and experiencing the weaknesses and temptation that comes to each and every one of us. And yet, this was developed some in chapter 2, but here in chapter 4 something's added to it. And yet He did so without sin. And so if you think about how this is all building together, 
The calling is to be faithful and obedient. And we have a faithful and obedient and merciful high priest. We have one who intercedes for us and one who has not only experienced temptation but has overcome it. And so as we seek to be those who are faithful and obedient, we look to the one and we rely on the one who has overcome it. This is good news. This is already getting at that Sabbath rest from temptation. He is the faithful and merciful high priest. In verse 16, let's draw near to the throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace when we need help. Three minutes here. Uh, Grace when we need help. We tend to hear grace as forgiveness. But in this context, grace isn't about forgiveness. Grace is about help. It's about freedom from sin. The good news is not just that we are forgiven when we stand before the judge, but the good news is that we can be freed now. We can have help now to overcome the sin that entangles us in this journey, like the Israelites were on, to our rest. But all of this, of course, is held in tension with the conditionality of the promise. And I hate talking about this, but you can't get past it in Hebrews. We are expected to follow our high priest and pioneer on this path of faithfulness and obedience. Certainly we can't be perfect. That's not the expectation. Why else would we need a high priest? But nonetheless, we don't do this with complacency and we don't take for granted the sacrifice of our high priest where he, ironically enough, offers himself. He is there in a time of need to give us the grace we need, but not just the grace we need at the end when we come to rest, but the grace we need now to journey this difficult journey with our human weaknesses of sin and temptation. One more brief quote. N.C. Wright is such a, a wordsmith. When we come to pray to the Heavenly Father, we are not shouting across a great gulf. We are not trying to catch the attention of someone who has little or no concern for us. Verse 16 puts it like this, we are coming to the throne of grace. That's a way of saying, one, that we're coming to the throne of God, and two, that we must now think of God as the God of grace. And we may and must come boldly and confidently. This isn't arrogance. Indeed, if we understand who Jesus is, what He's done and what He's still doing on our behalf, the real arrogance would be to refuse to accept his offer of standing before the Father on our behalf, to imagine that we had to bypass him and to try to do it all ourselves. What is on offer for those who come to God through Jesus is mercy and grace. Mercy to set us free from the sin and folly in which we would otherwise sink completely, and grace to strengthen us and set us on our feet for our own lives of service and witness. Christ as the great high priest stands between us and God, not as though God is this bad cop and Jesus is good cop, it is God who sent Christ. And we have one who has gone where he calls us to go, and he's experienced our weakness, and yet he has been without sin, and he has compassion and mercy and grace, and, because he became fully like us, empathy. So yes, we will be laid bare before God. 
But we don't do so alone. We do so with the merciful and empathetic high priest standing on our side. So let us make every effort to enter that rest, not falling as our ancestors did in the desert. Let us open ourselves to the living word so that our darknesses may be brought to light and may be healed. Let us hold on to our confession that Jesus is Messiah, that He is our King and we are His subjects because we have such a great High Priest. And let us approach the throne of God, the throne of grace, to receive mercy and help. May you all be blessed. See you all next week as we do chapter 5.